Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. On a spring morning of 1914 in the stark foothills of southern Colorado, members of the United Mine Workers of America clashed with guards employed by the Rockefeller family and a state militia. And when the dust settled, 19 men, women, and children among the miners' families lay dead. The strikers had killed at least 30 men, destroyed six mines, and laid waste to two company towns. In his book, Killing for Coal, Thomas Andrews recounts the 1914 Ludlow Massacre and the Great Coalfield War. He situates it not only in labor history, but environmental history. and says that fossil fuels, especially coal, shaped the West, continue to shape the West. And there are parallels between the events of 1914 and today. Thomas Andrews is Associate Professor of History at the University of Colorado. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Great to be here. Uh, I was uh, watching a little uh, video blurb that you have and uh, learned that uh, you have coal in your family. You uh, you visited uh, northern England where I believe your did your dad immigrate? Yeah, yeah, my dad's British. So you have uh, you have some history here. Yeah, definitely. On you know, really on both sides of the family. So on my my dad's side, um, they were coal and iron miners going going a fair ways back. Um, and then on my mom's side as well, um, her, uh, her her well, I, I guess her um, her mother came from an Irish family that uh, mined coal out in the the coke and coal fields in western Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh. Hmm. And, and you say that uh, at least on these visits uh, back to northern England, you could you sort of breathe in the coal dust. It's still sort of that obvious. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 um, I visited England quite a lot in the in the late '70s into the '80s, and um, and you know they were still burning huge amounts of coal there then. And so I'd go to my to my grand's house or to my great auntie's house, and um, they were still burning coal in the in the fireplace. You know, I mean, it was still the way that they were heating their homes. Um, and, you know, and, and it was still the major um, industrial fuel, um, and so. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in that part of the world at that time, um, the smell of coal was pretty much everywhere, and the the grime and grit of it were, you know, was 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 over all the buildings. Um, things have things have changed a fair amount in, in the UK since then. But and you're saying that uh, fossil fuels, especially coal, shaped the West, continued to shape the West. We'll get into that uh, as well. I wonder, uh, do you have your book with you? I do. I wonder if you just to set this up. This is uh, this is history that I hadn't known until I encountered this. The 1914 Ludlow Massacre. Of course, there was a, a battle immediately after that to shape that history. And the, the Rockefeller family didn't want this known as a massacre, but that, I guess that's how it's, how it's become known. Um, I wonder if you'd read uh, just from the introduction, the, the first page, and then uh, the first two paragraphs on the second page. Yeah, sure. The shooting started around 9 o'clock on a bright, breezy morning in a broad valley where the broken foothills of the southern Rockies tumble down onto the high plains. No one has ever determined who shot first, but participants and witnesses all agreed that within seconds of the initial gun blast, bullets began to fly thick and fast. Occupying the high ground was a small detachment of Colorado National Guardsmen. Thirty-four strong, this force and the dozen other militiamen encamped in the flats below consisted mostly of men formerly employed as guards by the largest coal mine operator in the West, the Rockefeller-owned Colorado Fuel and Iron Company. Seven months of shootouts and assassinations, executions and ambushes had already earned the Colorado Coalfield War, the dubious distinction of being the deadliest strike in the history of the United States. On the morning of April 20, 1914, however, the conflict between Colorado state militia allied with the West's largest coal producers and mine workers, organized under the auspices of the nation's largest union, erupted into open warfare in what would become known as the Ludlow Massacre. Returning the guardsmen's fire were hundreds of striking coal miners of more than a dozen nationalities, all of whom resided in the Ludlow Tank Colony, the largest of its kind in the history of this country, according to a United Mine Workers official, John Lawson. Union leaders had named the 1,200-person camp after the railroad depot about a mile away. The strikers, however, nicknamed it the White City, an apt description of the settlement's gleaming canvas facades, as well as an ironic reference to the dreamlike buildings that had housed the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. The sounds of exploding powder and shrieking bullets echoed between pinion-covered canyon walls, rousing the many strikers who had decided to sleep in, following Orthodox Easter festivities that had run late into the night. 
Women grabbed the children and hid with them in cellars dug into the hard adobe soil below the colony. The men of the camp, meanwhile, took their weapons, hurried to defensive positions via a nearby arroyo, and returned fire in hopes of drawing the assault away from the colony. And uh, you go on to, to recount, this is the dramatic stuff, uh, that uh, there was a, uh, a private Martin in the militia who was killed, and I think some 11 children and, and a couple of women. How, how did that happen? Well, um, you know, the, the, the initial deaths on the day of April 20th came in the, in the gun battle. So Private Martin was, was struck with a bullet um, in, the, in the face. Um, you know, several, several men and uh, one, one child were killed over the course of the day, but most of the deaths actually came um, after the tent colony caught fire. And again, there's, you know, sharply conflicting accounts as to, as to the origins of the fire. But uh, the Ludlow tent colony caught fire and was consumed by the flames, and the flames burned so burned so hotly that they actually consumed all of the oxygen um, in the in the cellars that miners had dug beneath the tents the previous fall. And um, so most of the deaths of, of women and children occurred in in one particular cellar, um, where you know the, the the people were basically killed by asphyxiation. Hmm. And immediately. Uh, and uh, I guess this always happens, there began a battle over uh, how to shape this history. Yeah, I mean, this is a very, you know, even though it, even though it happened almost 100 years ago, this is a, a strikingly modern event in a lot of ways. You know, there, it, was, it was heavily covered by, by regional and national media. Um, and even, you know, so throughout the strike, there were sharply conflicting versions of events. This is a period during which the media was actually more polarized, even, I would say, than it is today. Um, and so there were, you know, there were Denver newspapers that were really partisans of the mine workers. There were other newspapers that were really towing the company line. And so one of the things that characterized this entire struggle is that, is that accounts of reality were, were polarized from the get-go. Um, and so... You know, when there was this when there was this outburst of violence, um, very very quickly, sharply conflicting viewpoints, um, you know, came into the public sphere. And so, you know, for instance, the union initially claimed that the death toll was up in the 60s. They accused the the coal company of of burning bodies in the coke ovens up above this tent colony. Um, and meanwhile, the you know most of the company officials tried to portray this as a sort of um, they, 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 they tended to portray the Greek strikers in particular as savage and bloodthirsty. I mean, they used this really um, colorful, racist language in portraying the Greeks, and so they blamed the, the, the violence on the strikers and claimed that this was because of you know, this, this uh, Greek contingent in particular that was just spoiling for a fight. Mm-hmm. And so even as, the, you know, even as the tent colony is still smoldering, these conflicting viewpoints are coming into... Coming into um, you know, people's homes via newspapers and, and that sort of thing. You're right. John D. Rockefeller Jr. Uh, took a, a central role here. He he employed a uh, the burgeoning world of, of public relations. Yeah, yeah. Um, historians of public relations and and um, you know people in the public relations field often look to Rockefeller's actions in the aftermath of Lovebo as as in a lot of ways kind of the birth of of modern public relations. And so he turned to a man named Ivy Lee, who had experience with the Pennsylvania Railroad as well as with other firms. Um, and Ivy Lee set about trying to kind of rectify the, the Rockefeller image, which, which was, um, you know, already in very bad shape because of the Standard Oil cases. And John D. Rockefeller Sr. was was quite widely reviled in his day and time. Um, and you know, and so so Ludlow was was another black mark on the family name. And John John D. Rockefeller Jr. was was cut from from fairly different cloth, really, than than his father. Um, and you know, one story that the or one sort of set of narratives that the Rockefeller family tells about Ludlow is this is kind of this is when John D. Jr. sort of realizes that he can't continue um, doing business the way that his father had. And so this is the beginning of, or or at least one beginning of a kind of kinder, gentler. Rockefeller approach that you see, you know, um, carried on through uh, through the Rockefeller Foundation and the Rockefeller family's philanthropies, which they were already engaged in, but which they stepped up in the wake of Ludlow. 
Ludlow did become a, a labor icon. It took its place as a famous incident, and, and uh, if you're talking to uh, you know union people, they, they would know Ludlow. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, it, it becomes... Um you know, it becomes one of those events in sort of the the, the story of, of, of martyrdom um, in the American labor movement, you know, such as Haymarket and um, Homestead, Cripple Creek, Coeur d'Alene, all of these, uh, Pullman, all these strikes that um, from the from the Gilded Age into the Progressive Era, you know, when in a lot of ways the, the, the major battle over the American future was between capital and labor, and these were... These were events in which labor fought, and um, and often um, fights in which working people suffered pretty pretty mm-hmm. serious. So on that day, the, most of the people killed were among the uh, the, the labor. Yeah. But over the course of this, uh, what seven month, of, you could call it a war conflict. Uh, there were killings on both sides. You're you're saying there were executions. This was very violent. On both sides. Yeah, it was extraordinarily violent. The the, the first the first death um, related to the strike actually happened before the before the official vote um, by the union. So even before the strike was was officially on, there were killings, and um, and 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 you know throughout the um, the the strike began in September of 1913. The first death was in August, and it was um, of a of a of an organizer named Gerald Lippiot. And, uh, and and the fighting, you know, grew more intense by October. A lot of the fighting actually centered on the Lubbock tank colony. This was a this was a massive strike. Southern Colorado was was far and away the most important coal mining region um, west of Illinois, really. So there were about twelve or thirteen thousand miners um, at work at that point, and virtually all of them uh, seemed to have gone out on strike. The companies. Predicted that not that many would join in, but um, but the vast majority of miners actually did go on strike. So there were probably, yeah, I mean, it, again, it's tough to get good figures because there's conflicting accounts. But there were probably in the neighborhood of 10,000 men on strike. Most of those men had had dependents, you know, they had they had family, and so this was a strike that, all told, directly involved probably at least 30,000 people. And so Ludlow was just one of, um, I believe, 10 tank colonies. That the United Mine Workers had had, had set up. Um, most of the most of the mine workers in Southern Colorado by that point in time lived in company housing, and one of the things that the coal companies always made sure of was that there was a clause in in, in the leases to company houses, whereby workers who went on strike would be evicted within usually within 48 hours. So there was massive massive evictions of mine workers and their families, and then they needed some place to live. So Ludlow was just one of many tank colonies, and um, from the beginning, really, it was it was a flashpoint for violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, where uh, what are the towns in Colorado that would be nearby that we'd know today? The um, the main the main sort of business centers for the Southern Colorado coal fields were um, Walsenburg and Trinidad. So mm-hmm. we're talking about the area north of the New Mexico border, right along the Front Range, along with what's I-25 today. Mm-hmm. So the, um, you know, if, if, if your listeners are ever driving between, um, you know, say Denver and New Mexico on I-25, the Ludlow Massacre Memorial is actually just off the, just off the highway. And it's well worth uh, taking a look at. This was erected by United Mine Workers? Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, because this was such an important event in, in labor history and such an important event in the, in the history of the United Mine Workers, um, they built a, a monument there, a, a beautiful granite monument, um, in 1918, and um, and and that 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 monument stands to this day, and the the union still owns the the site. Hmm. You, I believe, in this video I was watching, you you draw a parallel between the miners' work and uh, and some of the violence that happened. That violence, it was a very dangerous occupation. Um, and and there's a connection there to the, to the violence that just seemed to be fairly natural uh, when they started uh, w- with this conflict. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I was really interested in trying to do in the book was to was to figure out um, a, a couple of a couple of mysteries. You know, I mean, I was trying to answer a couple of main questions, and one of those questions is um, there's a pattern of, of of strikes in Southern Colorado. So about every ten years, there would be there would be a, a fairly large struggle um, 
so that you know in 1884 in 1893 in 1903 1904 and in 1913 14 there were large coal strikes in the district so that's one pattern is that there's a sort of persistent um, persistent outpouring of um, labor militancy. And then the other pattern was that over time, those strikes grew more violent, culminating, of course, in 1913-14. And so, you know, it's one of the things that I try to do in my book then is to take a longer-term view of the struggles in 1913-14 and try to understand where the miners' militancy came from and how that militancy grew increasingly violent over the years. And so, so one of the key things that I that I that I find or that I you know that I that I argue based on on my research in archival materials and in a whole range of stuff on uh, on on coal mining in Colorado and in other parts of the West such as um, such as the Price area in Utah um, is that there was this sort of daily daily violence and daily hazard involved in coal mining. I mean, yeah, I mean, this isn't, this isn't some sort of, this isn't a novel finding, right? People who, people who know anything about coal mining are familiar with, with the dangers of the industry. Um, but workers, workers faced, you know, basically constant peril um, when they were underground. And the, the, the dangers ranged from falls of roof um, or, uh, you know, collapse, collapses of coal from the, from the mine face. Those kinds of events usually killed one or two workers at a at a time, and then um, there were also the sort of ever present threat of explosion. Southern Colorado's coal mines were very gassy in most instances, so they had methane in them, which was pretty easy to ignite. And then they were also very dusty. And given the arid atmospheric conditions in Southern Colorado, as well as the chemical composition of the coal, um, coal dust in the area was extremely hazardous. And so, for instance, in 1910 alone, there were three coal mine explosions in Los Animas County, which is the, the county just north of the New Mexico line around Trinidad. And those three explosions in a single year killed more than 200 mine workers. Hmm. So the coal mines were places where life was, was quite cheap. Um, workers saw their, their fellow men and their fellow boys um, die in a you know in a pretty pretty regular basis and with pretty shocking regularity, mm-hmm. and and so I think that that had that had a couple you know that sort of daily danger of, of of work had a couple of implications or a couple of consequences. One was that um, there was a toughness um, to the miners, what I would call their work culture. Um, this was a you know I mean these were these were manly men who were used to really rugged lives, and um, and so I think that that sort of Reduce the um, that, that made them a little bit more likely to engage in acts of violence um, because it was just such a, a violent milieu anyway. Um, I think the other thing, though, that the, that the dangers underground inspired was a, a pretty high degree of mutualism. So that coal miners um, coal miners were concerned about their fellow workers underground, partly out of self-interest. So um, one real one really strong difference that one sees between coal mines and other kinds of mines in the American West is that in coal mines, there was a real kind of um, impulse or an imperative for experienced miners who knew what they were doing, who knew how to keep themselves and their fellow workers safe underground, to share their knowledge and to share their expertise, basically by training and educating what were called green men, um, new immigrants, um, people from rural areas who had no experience mining coal. Because one mistake by one miner in a remote section of a of a pit could result in you know a hundred deaths, and so there's this really sort of different you know there's this tendency for coal miners to um, to find some kind of common cause despite the massive cultural and racial and ethnic and religious differences between them. We're talking with Thomas Andrews. His book is Killing for Coal. Uh, recounts the, uh, the 1914 Ludlow Massacre and the Great Coalfield War, which uh, preceded it, um, and uh, the deadliest uh, strike in uh, American labor history. Thomas Andrews situates this not only in labor history, but in uh, the environment. We'll get into talking about that. He says that uh, fossil fuels, and especially coal, uh, were key in shaping the West still today. Then and now, there are parallels between the Ludlow Massacre and the Great Coalfield War of uh, of 1914 and uh, just before and today. And uh, when we come back from a, a brief break, um, I'm going to ask uh, Professor Andrews to uh, talk about 
uh, what he calls uh, the, the environment of the time, calls it vestigial democracy, verging on feudalism. This is by design from the, uh, from the capital side. And uh, surprising then, as the professor has been saying, that uh, these men came together and were able to organize. We'll talk about that and fossil fuels shaping the West then and now a following break. This week on This American Life, twin 13-year-old girls who do not get along. I got to see her when I wake up, when I go to sleep, and I don't like her. By chance, their middle school is run by twin brothers, Ronnie and Reggie Richardson. They're like, whoa, no, that's totally against twin code. Let's talk about this. Seeing yourself and others and where that leads this week. Friday morning at 3 and Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're going back into history, history, though, that has many resonances to today. It's the Ludlow Massacre of 1914, uh, where uh, Rockefeller men and Colorado militia uh, faced off against uh, miners in the Union at a Ludlow camp. Uh, several people were killed, including 11 children. And preceding that, uh, many people killed in executions and uh, other incidents throughout this uh, bloody labor conflict. Thomas Andrews, Associate Professor of History at uh, University of Colorado, in his book Killing for Coal, says that this uh, should be situated not only in labor history but environment, uh, environmental history. And uh, says that fossil fuels have shaped the West then and now and continue to shape the world. That transition from organic energy to fossil fuels, we'll get to talking about that. First, I want to talk about uh, the tensions between capital and labor. Of course, we're very familiar with this, but uh, you describe this environment as verging on feudalism, just vestigial democracy. And this is by design, right? The, the company wanted to have control over, over the, the men. Yeah, I mean, what, what, what I argue happened was that um, initially the coal companies, which, which began as sort of, most of them began as offshoots of, of railroad operations, um, particularly, particularly um, offshoots of the Denver and Rio Grande uh, Railroad. These, you know, in, initially the coal companies um, did not build company towns. They, they, you know, they allowed independent merchants to come into the camps um, the camps were um, incorporated communities, so they had an independent political structure. The coal companies initially, they would set up a town company, but then uh, miners who came to town and, and liked it and wanted to stay could buy land, so they would own the, you know, they would own the ground on which their houses stood. Um, over, over time, the coal companies increasingly let miners build houses of their own on company-owned land, and the, and the miners would just pay a, a, a nominal ground rent of usually a dollar a year. So prior to the 1890s, I argue that there, there were really very few company towns in southern Colorado. There was a large strike in 1894, which I call the marching strike because that's its most striking feature is that coal miners um, marched. Uh, pretty considerable distances throughout southern Colorado. One, they they came out of the mines and went to other mines to try to, you know, convince and threaten um, other workers to to come off the job. And then they would continue to march to other mines. And these marches actually covered, you know, 80, 100 miles, um, very very large, elaborate processions. Um, and even though the companies ended up winning in this strike in 1894. They took a, the, the strike scared them, and one of the things that company officials, I think, realized, although this isn't this isn't um, documented, um, I think that the company officials looked backwards on this strike, and they noticed a pattern. They noticed that basically the strike broke down at those few company towns that they had started to build. So there were a couple of uh, company towns, in particular one called Rouse, and the strike made almost no headway in in the in the real company town. And so after 1894, in the wake of this strike, Colorado Fuel and Iron and the other large operators in southern Colorado started building a company town system, really as a direct response to the threat of unionism. Um, and they, they often use the language of contagion. So they viewed these camps as basically places, to, uh, places where they could establish almost a kind of quarantine where they could prevent the, the contagion of unionism from spreading. And so these company towns were, you know, very, very heavily controlled 
um, spaces where oftentimes there would be a a fence around the outside. Nobody, um, you know, the only landowner within the the limits of the camp would be the coal company. There would be a company store. There would be company-controlled schools, um, often a company club. And so this was an attempt by the coal companies to really sort of ratchet down the ups, the sort of upsurge of, of militancy that, that always sort of threatened to break out from the mines underground because of the conditions that we talked about earlier. Um, but, the, the, you know, the consequence of this, well, I'll get to the consequence in a second, but part, part of this too then was, was involved political and legal control. And so the coal companies um, spent quite a lot of money trying to control local and state politics um, they, they actually spent a lot of money on, um, on Senate campaigns and that sort of thing as well. Um, and so by, by the early 1900s, really, most of the local officials, from the sheriffs to the, to the local judges, um, in, some, in some way or another, seemed to be beholden to the coal companies. Uh, and some of the... Uh... Well, you write in the, uh, this is in the introduction, the family names of the 18 strikers killed over the course of the day, Snyder, Ticas, Costa, Valdez, Pedregon, hinted at the diverse paths they followed to the coal fields. That, I think you're right, uh, is, is somewhat by design, isn't it? The hope was that the different nationalities, they wouldn't work together. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it was a combination of, um, you know, there's a, a, whole, a whole combination of factors really contributed to the to the incredible diversity of this mine workforce, and and really, I, I think I think one would be hard pressed to find um, workforces anywhere in the world at that time that were more diverse than the Colorado coal fields, because there was a large local um, Hispano population of um, folks with roots in southern Colorado or northern New Mexico. There were all sorts of uh, of white Americans from different regions of the country, African Americans. There was a whole host of Europeans. There were um, Asians in the in the mines. Um, one point, I even found some um, found a Syrian and uh, and a man from Tripoli <laughs> uh, mining coal. And so these are incredibly you know incredibly mixed up um, you know polyglot places. It, this was partly through deliberate company policy. And so the companies did do some direct recruiting in um, in Europe and in Japan in particular. And so they would, you know, they would pay immigration agents to go through small villages, drumming up immigration, promising jobs, um, you know, well-paying jobs in in, uh, in the glorious American West. Mm-hmm. And so some workers ended up in in the coal fields for that reason. Um, but then there were also the sort of usual set of factors involved in um, in, in, in migration. So. Um, there was the the lure of the mines, which even though I think I think you know in retrospect we look at them as pretty awful workplaces, they actually paid they, they appeared to pay relatively decent wages. Um, they had to because the work was so dangerous and so tough. But still, you could make a you know you, um, miners who knew what they were doing could earn you know three fifty four dollars a day at a time when factory workers were often earning only two dollars a day and at a time when peasants might be lucky to make a few pennies a day in, in many parts of the world. So, you know, there, was, there were the sort of economic factors of the, the, the pull toward the mines, the various pushes that were, um, that were you know, leading people to, to leave um, these, uh, these sort of labor hinterlands across the world. So, it, you know, the, the diversity was a combination of, of direct company recruitment because the coal companies did, you know, they, they, they certainly recognized the advantages of having men underground who couldn't communicate with each other and who might have, you know, religious or national anti- or, or racial antagonisms toward each other. Was this, could we put it as idealistically as this was the American dream? You could, you you might die. The the odds were uncomfortably high. It's dangerous areas, but you could make some money and you could you could rise up. That was the promise. Yeah, and I mean that that was really that was really what lured people. Um, to these places and what, and what brought them to these places and what inspired them. And I think that that's, that's a really important piece of understanding this pattern of strikes um, because the, you know, the, the, the men and, and, and women and children who came to southern Colorado from, you know, from places near and far um, came, for, they came for a reason and they came with ambitions. They came with, they came with dreams in their heads, really. You know? and, and so part of, 
I think part of what happened in each of these strikes, but especially in the 1913-14 strike, is that there was part of what drew all these people together is that they wanted more and they weren't getting it, and they thought that they deserved more. And they knew that if they worked together, they, they might be able to, I mean, as powerful as the coal companies were, they believed that they might be able to get a better deal and they might be able to get a little bit closer to that, to that dream to which they aspired. You write in your epilogue that uh, this continues today. Uh, India, China, Nigeria, there are people um, doing very dangerous work. Um, uh, from their perspective, they're they're trying to rise up. They have that uh, that dream. They're willing to risk their lives uh, for this, or, or maybe there's nothing else that's that's, that's better. Uh, and that's providing us with energy. And we don't think much about where our energy comes from. No, no. I mean, I I I, I think most of us don't. I think it's um, you know probably probably because it's difficult to actually figure out you know where, um, for instance, the gas you put in your car. I mean, you know, trying to figure out where that particular tank of gasoline came from is basically impossible given the given the processes that you know that um that intervene between our cars and um and the the the, the drilling rigs um around the world and the refineries in the case of coal you know it, it it's often a little bit easier to to know where your electricity is coming from um but given you know given the way that the grid works and that kind of thing it's 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 quite difficult um so even if even if you want to figure out where your energy comes from, it's it's often it's often difficult or impossible. Uh, but I think you know I think most people are um, most Americans have long been accustomed to uh, not paying much mind to where our heat and where our, where our light, um, where our electricity come from. So yeah, I mean I think I, I think that I think that kind of disconnect um, continues down to this day. That disconnect between between consumers of energy and, and the, the producers of energy. And you talk about, uh, uh, say, Crested Butte, the old mining place. Now it's become a, a resort. Uh, but the paradox is, you're right, that the, these places uh, all over the West, of course, all over the world, are even more dependent on, on fossil fuels. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, certainly, a, it's certainly a high energy economy that we've committed ourselves to in the, in the, in the West and throughout the United States. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, you know, if you look at kind of your, your, your mega mansion in, in these resort communities, um, they have a, they have a massive energy footprint in most cases. I, you know, I mean, I think, I think, um, in some cases people are trying to be a little bit more mindful and, and, and they're, you know, they're, they're building green buildings, but, um, but sometimes the scale, um, but the large scale of those green buildings kind of undercuts that. That, that idea of, of trying to minimize consumption. I wonder, having uh, studied this history, uh, dealing with energy, dealing with labor, if if you've sort of applied that in any way to uh, the what's going on in North Dakota right now, seems seems like in some ways it, it is kind of the Wild West. You, there's there must be some parallels there. Yeah, I, I you know I, I don't know. Um, one of the one of the one of the occupational uh, shortcomings of being a historian is that you know we do tend to be pretty pretty focused on the past. So I I haven't I have you know I don't I don't have a lot of um, knowledge about the North Dakota situation. But you know I mean it's, I, I, my understanding is that you know you do really have this this full fledged um, energy boom underway. I think I think in some ways though um, that kind of energy boom might be a little bit more akin to almost kind of a, a, a more of a gold rush sort of environment, mm-hmm. you know, because I think that it, it, it is very heavily male in a lot of those um, oil and gas drilling areas. Um, people are making really, really, you know, quite good money, which which was never really the case in, in, in coal mining. I mean, people were making decent money, but, um, but you know, people without, people with, without high school educations who have or sorry, without college educations, but who have the the skills needed in the oil and gas fields, um, right now can can make very very good money. So I think there's you know it's, it, it might be a little bit you know more similar to um, to a place like Park City during the Silver Days or or, um, or or something like that. Interesting. I was just thinking uh, and and connecting this to Utah. Utah, of course, is uh, uh, heavily dependent on coal. Yeah, and you know, not repentantly so. That you know, at least the current government has embraced that. It provides a lot of jobs. There are still dangers, as evidenced by the you know not so 
distant uh, tragedies uh, in in central Utah. Um, and it's heavily automated now. I was thinking back to in in your book. You say there was an attempt to automate early on, and uh, but uh, but it didn't work there. But but the way you mine coal is is not changed essentially all that much. Well, I mean, it's it's. Um, I would actually argue that it's that it's really pretty fundamentally different today. I mean, the it, it, first of all, you know, you have you have a huge quantity of of. Um, of, of coal being mined in places like the Powder River Country in Wyoming, that's just surface mining, um, and that that wasn't really being practiced in, in Southern Colorado or in or in Utah um, during the era I'm writing about. Um, but the other difference, it, you know, really involves the the extent of mechanization because prior, really up until the 1920s, um, in most parts of the American West, most coal miners were they were working in a manner that was that was pretty similar to the ways in which, you know, Welsh miners would have been working early in the 1800s or Scottish miners in the 1700s. It was really, um, it was really pick and shovel work primarily with, with some use of explosives. You know, so workers were mostly mining in pairs. Um, they had, they had a lot of control over the, over their labor. They actually had to be very skilled to, to make a good wage, um, cause they were being paid by the ton. Uh, and and to stay alive in these conditions, and so, you know, I mean, I think, I, I think the the basic problem for underground mining remains the same, which is how do you systematically remove, you know, a strata of the earth without it falling down on top of you? But but almost everything else has changed, so that now, you know, the amount of the amount of coal that a single worker produces in a in a year today is you know several orders of magnitude more than than what a what a miner in 1914 could could pull out the uh, the dangers remain and the and the health risks but i wonder uh, you don't see the labor conflict yeah as much. The, um, the 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 dangers do certainly remain and and the um you know both both the acute hazards of um you know explosions and cave-ins uh, floods, all of those kinds of things that we that we still um, that we still see from time to time in the news and and, and devastating coal mining communities, um, and and the chronic hazards of black lung um, and other other occupational diseases definitely continue. Um, yeah, I mean the, the United Mine Workers, um, have, you know that that's an organization that has nowhere near the power that it once had, and there's. There's a lot of a lot of reasons for that. I'm, you know, that's a little bit after my main area of research, so I'm I'm not the best person really to to talk about on that. But one of the big factors really has been the rise of of, 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 of surface mining, you know, strip mining and mountaintop removal, because the the union hasn't hasn't been very successful in um, in unionizing those kinds of operations, which now produce um, vast quantities of coal, and so that's really kind of undercut their their bargaining power. And I think mechanization has also um, mostly reduced workers' bargaining power with the companies because the companies own own the machinery. Um, you know, it's really their capital, and so the workers don't have the same um, leverage that they did back in the pick and shovel days. My guest for the hour is Thomas Andrews. He's associate professor of history at the University of Colorado. His book is "Killing for Coal," recounts the Ludlow massacre of 1914 and uh, the events and factors that led up to that. He says that uh, fossil fuels, especially coal, shaped the Old West, continue to shape the New West. Uh, Very interesting. uh, I learned uh, some interesting things reading the book about how we made that transition from organic energy to fossil fuels. I'll ask the professor to recount that uh, coming up following a break. You've probably used the word on more than one occasion. It's a word we use to describe someone who cuts us off in traffic or in front of us in line, someone who thinks he's entitled to special treatment. And Jim Fleming, next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge, we explore the A word. It's To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRI, Public Radio International. Sunday morning at 9 on Utah Public Radio. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll travel to the remote and rocky islands of Cape Verde, 300 miles off the west coast of Africa, 
to hear enchanting mornas, funanas, and coladeras. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join me for Cape Verde, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Did you know that 26% of children who were read to three or four times in the last week by a family member recognized all letters of the alphabet compared to 14% of children who were read to less frequently? Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. We're talking on Access Utah with Thomas Andrews, Associate Professor of History at University of Colorado. His book is Killing for Cold, recounts the 1914 Ludlow Massacre, the Great Coalfield War of that year and into the preceding year, uh, labor and capital, but also the environment. And uh, fossil fuels, especially coal, shaped the West, he says, continues to shape the West. Uh, Professor, I'd like you to uh, find this very interesting. Uh, We know that at some point we transitioned from organic energy to fossil fuels. I've never focused on why or, or how that happened. Uh, one of the factors uh, out in the West, the rivers are either too, either too slow or too fast to run the mills. Uh, they found a, uh, what do they call it, the rock that burns. But I wonder how, what were the factors that led into, okay, we're going to make a transition here? Well, you know, I mean, the, the, the way I see it, in a lot of ways, the American West was, um, and in particular, the sort of Rocky Mountain West, was, was, um, was suffering from an energy crisis by the 1860s. And so, if you think about, um, I, yeah, I, I think we're all aware of aridity as a defining feature of most parts of, of the American West, certainly the parts where uh, where you and I live. And um, a couple consequences of that aridity are worth noting. So one is that the, you know, as you just said, the water power um, isn't really sufficient for um, for driving factories. Second of all, water transportation was basically out of the question. Um, and third. Because of the lack of precipitation, um, the sort of biomass available on the ground was not all that significant. Um, you know, many parts of Colorado and Utah are definitely forested, but we're talking often about aspen or cottonwood or, you know, ponderosa pine um, trees that um, trees that, as the experience of mining camps would show, could be locally exhausted within a matter of years once a large, um, you know, uh, once a large white American population started to pursue industrial activities in a given area. And so there's this real shortage of, of, of access to easy energy in, in the West. Um, and in a lot of ways, coal becomes the solution to that. And so, so coal helped, um, helped Westerners in the Sarah solve this really pressing problem of how are we going to get the energy we need to do the work that we want to do of transforming nature to produce the wealth that, that you know, to, to, to which we're aspiring. Um, and in a lot of ways, the railroads are sort of the pioneers of this high-energy high economy. And one of the things that I always like to kind of come back to is the, the extent to which locomotives have become icons of the American West, that sort of steaming locomotive, um, you know, that steam-powered, um, smoking locomotive. And that black smoke coming out of the stack, I think a lot of times people don't really think about, you know, where does that smoke come from? We know that where there's smoke, there has to be fire, but what, what are these trains burning? And um, Western railroads were burning coal almost from the outset. You know, and some, sometimes in some places they might burn wood. But for the most part, they were, they were designed to burn coal. And um, they're coal deposits, you know, nicely scattered through most parts of the American West. And uh, railroad lines, you know, many railroad companies plan their lines accordingly. They sent out um, survey expeditions in advance with geologists, mining engineers, to try to find those coal deposits because they knew that fuel was a major item of their, uh, you know, a, a major expense, and they needed good access to coal, or or the or the, the railroad lines wouldn't really run. So, so the railroads, you know, the railroads developed a lot of the initial coal mining areas, and um, and early on, most of the coal coming out of western coal mines was being burned by the railroads themselves. But over time, the railroads start hauling coal 
from the coal fields to to a range of other consumers. And um, you know, by by 1900 or so, um, I argue that coal was really central to most economic activities and and most ways of living in the American West. So that in the hard rock mining areas, the places where gold and silver and copper were being mined. Um, those those deep underground mines that were you know extracting increasingly low grade ore needed hoists, they needed ventilation systems, they needed pumps to get the water out, um, they needed um, energy for pneumatic drills and the other machines that miners were using underground, and so gold, silver, copper mines used a tremendous amount of coal. Um, all of those ores needed processing, and so again, coal and its and its uh, its byproduct, or, well, not its byproduct, but its more pure form, coke, uh, becomes central to smelting throughout the American West. In places where there was manufacturing, such as Pueblo in Colorado, where there were giant steel mills um, operated by the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company, coal and coke were consumed in massive quantities. And then, if you look at agricultural areas, increasingly steam threshers were important on the high plains. Um, and then finally, in urban areas and in any, you know, really any kind of um, substantial settlement, people were burning coal to heat their homes, to cook their food. Um, and then increasingly, in cities like Denver or Salt Lake City, there's a whole array of high-energy technologies, um, such as streetcar systems or electric lighting, that are becoming increasingly significant and increasingly central to the ways in which people are doing business and and living their lives. As you're describing all this, I'm I'm thinking there, uh, well, most of this applies very directly to today. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, and I think that that's that's one of the that, that's one of the kind of unsettling implications of of, of the book. Um, to me, is that I think that a lot of us, you know, myself included. Um, it's easy to be critical of the kind of, you know, of the automobile economy, of suburban consumerism, that whole kind of complex. And I think a lot of people look back toward the days of rail and the days of trolleys, you know, as this kind of um, better, you know, somehow better, cleaner, uh, more sustainable world. And um, and I think in a lot of ways, one of the things that my book shows is that is that is that that. That kind of earlier world, in a lot of ways, is how we got to where we are today. So that street, you know, streetcar suburbanization was really kind of the beginning of, of urban sprawl, um, whether in Salt Lake or in or in Denver. I wonder if you could follow up a little bit on that. The, the social implications of this this new fossil fuel uh, economy. One implication was that if you were a little bit richer, you could live much further away from your workplace. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so one of the things that starts happening in 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 Denver and in the in, in the other larger cities in Colorado is that is that the social geography becomes much more much more elaborate. And what I mean by that is that uh, wealthy folks um, were increasingly moving out of the central city to um, to streetcar suburbs that often explicitly advertise themselves as more in uh, more healthy and better places to get in touch with nature. And by implication, they were places to get away from smelter smoke and also to get away from the kinds of lower-class people who came to a city like Denver to work in, in, the, in, the, in the silver smelters in Globeville and Argo and places like that. And, um, and so, you know, wealthy, there's this whole sort of elaboration then where wealthier people are increasingly um, living lives that are further removed from from the grit of, of coal. So they're taking coal-powered streetcars into their downtown offices. They're flipping switches in their houses to turn on electric light. Increasingly, they're using, um, you, you know, well, usually not them. Their servants would be using um, cook stoves that consumed uh, gas that was manufactured from coal. This is before natural gas was really exploited, um, in, you know, to a significant extent. And so they're they're using you know wealthy people would actually be using a lot of energy, but they weren't having to deal with the negative consequences of the coal-powered economy. And in your epilogue, you bring this forward to today. I'll just read a brief passage. You talk about how energy wars uh, take place uh, perhaps in corporate boardrooms, legislative chambers, Nigeria, Venezuela, Bolivia, Iraq. Then you say the story of the Colorado coalfield wars should prompt us to ask more probing questions about our connection with these conflicts and our responsibility for the suffering and damage they're causing. 
you feel this would be this would be a good thing for all of us to do? Yeah, certainly. I, you know, I mean, I think that that's 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 one of my big hopes for the for for the book is that um, you know is that, is that folks who who read it and enjoy it and who who reckon with um, with with the interpretation that it offers um, that they would want to think more about about where the energy they consume comes from and what kinds of consequences um, you know the, the their consumption our consumption has on the world around us. And you think that would prompt us to change in some way in our use of energy? <laughs> well, that's the that's that's sort of the sixty four thousand dollar question. I mean, I I, I I I mean, I think that awareness is an important first step toward um, toward meaningful change. Um, I think it's you know it, it, it's it's not sufficient by any means, and so where to you know where what to do once one becomes aware of of of, of these issues um that gets a lot more complicated and and that's where that's where a lot of my um you know that's where my hope uh diminishes somewhat mm-hmm. so i don't you know i mean i think i, I think you can I, I, you know i mean a good example to me of this would be say like the slow food movement and the growing concern um inspired by books like omnivore's dilemma um, whereby you know more and more people are wondering where their food comes from. Um, they're taking more responsibility for the kind of social and environmental processes and economic processes involved in bringing you know coffee into their cup or or a meal onto their plate. Um, but at the same time, that I, I'm not really sure that that's translated into you know better pay for farm workers, for instance. Uh, we just have about thirty seconds left. Um, I read briefly your your new book. It is quite interesting in animals history of the U.S. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm working on a on a history of human animal interactions in the United States over about the last six hundred years. Where um, I'm trying to I, I'm trying to provide a historical analysis of where uh, this whole array of contemporary relationships that we have with other creatures um, come from and, and how those how those relationships have evolved over time. Uh, that'll be out. Is it out now or out soon? No. Um, mm. It's going to take a few more years probably. Okay. Sounds interesting. <laughs> I have to have you Thanks. back on to talk about that. Okay. The current book is Killing for Coal. Thomas Andrews is Associate Professor of History at University of Colorado. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Yes. Thank you, Tom. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah Today.